Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, what's going on, my man? Nothing much. Another Wednesday, another recording. It's great to be back at it after last week's re-listen of one of our most popular episodes, the interview with Shalane Flanagan that we did shortly after her retirement. We hope you all like that. Now we're back with something fresh. Oh, yeah. I love that episode. So many deep insight and wisdom from Shalane. So before we get into this week's episode, we've got a couple things to tell you about. I'll keep it short. If you're interested in our conversations, if you want to be part of our community, join our Patreon group, which has book club, mastermind meetings. It's basically our way to you know, expand our community in terms of learning, performing, and growing. So if that sounds interesting to you, head on over to patreon.com slash the growth equation and check it out. And then Brad has some more exciting news and offers here. Well, on the community, less than the cup of a oat milk shaken espresso grande at Starbucks. And I know this because I had one yesterday and inflation, man, it's like $5.95. And I'm like, wow, I could have joined the Growth Equation Patreon community for less than this. So all it takes is replacing one designer coffee drink with some Folgers and um, financially it's a wash. So there you have it. Now, the other exciting news that I have is the practice of groundedness was selected for a neat audiobook promotion through Audible. And it was called Spring Forward, and it was a selection of their best books to head into spring. And they selected the practice of groundedness, which is great. And as a result, the book has been consistently in the top 50 audiobooks in the world over the last couple of days. So It's great. As an author, I'm thrilled that people are listening. It's getting the word out about the book, about the ideas in it. Um, So it's just a pitch. If you haven't yet listened to The Practice of Groundedness, but you're listening to our podcast, highly, highly recommend going, grabbing it through Audible as a part of this promotion. Um, It should still be on sale. And even if you are not an Audible member, I'm pretty sure as a part of this, you can listen to it in a free kind of trial book listen. So My guess is many of you have already read, listened, perhaps both to The Practice of Groundedness, but if you haven't, now is a great time. You're not going to get a better deal than this, so head over to Audible and check that out. All right. So now that we've got that covered, this week's episode is going to be kind of like a, I'll call it a hodgepodge update, right, where we're going to use things from our own life, our own experience, to kind of talk about some of the uh, the bigger issues in the kind of health, sustainable performance world. So why don't we start off with our, our own health and kind of kind of give an update on, on where we are, what we're doing, and, and what we're trying to do. So where to start? Um, I'm just going to start with the elephant in the room. I... Brad Stahlberg, and I'm going to attempt to lose some weight over the next three weeks. And it's the first time that I've thought about this in ages. And it's for a couple of uh, a couple of variables. The first 
is I'm scheduled to have a surgical procedure on my calf this summer. And as a result of that, I'll be laid up for at least four weeks. That's the aggressive, everything goes perfectly side all the way up to three months. So I'd like to head into that fairly lean. And the second reason is through my strength training efforts combined with my limitations for aerobic activity with my calf issues, um, my body comp just isn't where I want it. And, you know, we all have some ego aesthetic as a part of life, but it's probably about 2% aesthetic and 98% health. And I think I'm hitting that age where I'm realizing that as I get older, I can no longer just eat what I want without thinking about it. Um, and I've put on some visceral fat, which is fat around the abdomen. And we know that that's associated with poor health outcomes. Um, that should not be a controversial thing to say. That's just objective science. And I want to be around on this planet for a long time. And these things creep. So I want to try to nip it in the bud. And I think the surgery was just kind of a health inflection point for me anyways. Um, so I've, I've come up with a plan after talking to a nutritionist that seems reasonable. And um, I'm going to do it. And the short of it is we can go into details, whatever questions Steve wants to prompt on behalf of the listeners. But the short of it is it's just going to require some trading up on habitual things. So for example, right now while recording this podcast, I'm eating an apple instead of peanut butter filled pretzels. I will cut out the peanut butter filled pretzels. After dinner, I tend to snack on Swedish fish. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I do. Not that many, you know, five to 10 a night, but those will probably get cut. And then I love scones. And I'm a big believer when it comes to health and not being too rigid. So I will still enjoy scones, but it will probably look more like one a week than four a week. And there's probably some details in minutia, but the crazy thing is for me, fortunately, starting off relatively healthy, it probably won't take many more changes, but those changes will be hard. So let me, let me ask you this, Brad, <laughs> how did you get to this point of, and you, you touched on this, but like what pushes you over the edge of like, Hey, I'm thinking about this to, Hey, I need to take action. You know, I'm like any other person. I read some stuff that, that made me think, Oh, um, so right now, I'm a tall 5'11", six feet on a good day, and I weigh about 205 pounds. I don't do body comp testing or anything like that, but based on the mirror, I'm probably like 16 to 17%, maybe 15. Um, so definitely not overweight or obese by body comp measures, but plenty of room for potential improvement. Where I got a little bit worried is my BMI puts me at heavily overweight. And for that reason, people say that BMI is a poor measure of health because it doesn't account for muscle mass. And the example everyone gives is someone like LeBron James or Serena Williams would be considered quite obese, and they're some of the best athletes in the world. What people don't say is that when large athletes retire, even if they're really strong, they tend to struggle with their weight in the future. And since I'm not training to be a pro athlete, I don't need to carry around this much size right now. Um, for me, it's about function. It's about longevity. 
in overall health. So I would rather try to get lean than just focus on like performance and sport, knowing that I won't always be able to train this hard. So could I carry around this weight and be absolutely healthy for the next five to 10 years and even gain weight? A hundred percent. When I hit 50 or 60, if I go in there at 511, 205, is that where I want to be? Probably not. So I got really curious about it. And now to be clear, I'm thinking like 10 pounds over three weeks, you know, no, 10 pounds over three months, three weeks would be not advisable. So quite modest, um, hopefully achievable by small changes and hopefully not sacrificing any athletic performance, but seeing, you know, what would it feel like to have a body comp that's closer to 13 or 12% body fat? Um, again, thinking down the road, which is, Hey, I'm not going to be able to train as hard as I always do. And I don't have to be as strong as LeBron James to make a living. So how can I set myself up for long-term health? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's it's an interesting trade-off between health and what you like to do and all all that good stuff. Um, I should note, you know, I was looking at this a couple of weeks ago for something else, just curiosity. But if you look at uh, longevity, for example, of um, high-level athletes, um, endurance athletes or endurance people who compete in endurance sports generally have the highest, longest longevity followed by like mixed, like maybe something like soccer and then followed at the, the bottom by like pure power. Right. And I think that's also why you see, you know, not all the time, but, but frequently, um, or occasionally in sports like uh, football where linemen sometimes like right after they play, like slim down as much as they can or, or a ton because they know like, Hey, this isn't healthy over the long haul. So it's like that, that interplay. And I think as a, a, a general human being, as we get closer to, or are in middle age, like those, those thoughts of like health and longevity start coming up instead of like when you're younger, like performance, like what am I trying to master? like nothing else matters, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I also, you asked me why now I finished reading this fascinating book called the hungry brain by, um, Stefan Gagné, who is a nutritionist and neuroscience. And he makes a fascinating case explaining why someone like a Charles Barkley or a Shaquille O'Neal, who was really fit while they played tends to put on a lot of weight and then struggles to get down to a healthy body weight. And to simplify a very well-written, nuanced book, what he says is that there's two things driving hunger. There's actual metabolic needs, and then there's our brain. So if you're someone like Charles Barkley or Shaq or Brad Stahlberg weighing 220, but lifting a ton of weight and performing really well, there's metabolic needs that are driving the intake of calories. But your brain also gets used to eating 3,500 calories, 4,000 calories a day. And even when the metabolic need goes away, you stop training that hard. The muscles don't demand that much energy to perform and repair themselves. The brain doesn't shift. The brain gets really used to 35 to 4,000 calories a day. Excuse me, 3,500 to 4,000. So I think what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to not let my brain get too comfortable with what it's like to weigh more than 205 pounds for too long. That's ultimately what this is about. 
because I know that at 5'11", being 205 pounds at age 60 or 65, unless I'm taking tons of testosterone, which I don't plan on doing, um, will not be a healthy body weight. Yeah, you know, that reminds me, again, this goes way back, so it might be bunk now, but when I was in grad school and taking nutrition courses, like there was all sorts of various like set point theories on, on weight that were all related to both physiological, but also like call it neural, like your expectations and like what's normal. And I, and, and you see this often in distance runners. And even I experience this to a degree as like, you know, when I'm running a hundred miles a week, the the trouble was how how can I get enough food in? <laughs> so like high school, college, even after me, like I would often consume like you know lots of random maybe sugar filled candy or food and still have like to degree that that tendency because like that was the only way I could get enough calories and was always eating and all that good stuff. I mean it wasn't the only way, but as a 20 something teenager or whatever it was the preferred way and it didn't really matter because again i was running 100 miles a week <laughs> as as i've grown older like that you know that tendency is still there that like you know need especially on sugar stuff to consume sugar stuff is still there especially after runs because that was like the thing to do but like now running six miles in a day instead of you know 15 like the physiological demand is different but like the brain still associates it oh um, yeah i need to eat like eight bowls of lucky charms because the brain thinks that you're running 100 miles and you're like nope i'm just walking six um and that's where i think i've let personally for my own comfort i've um i've i've loosened the grip too much on on, on the brain um I think the other important thing to say, because we talk so much about, you know, nutrition and quote unquote diets, um, the plan that I'll be using is the least sexy of all the plans, but it's the one that I think works the best for athletes, which is simply to take a look at calories in and calories out and ensure that I have my protein and carbohydrate requirements met. So it's the opposite of a keto diet. It's the opposite of like a high fat, low carb diet. Um, if anything, it's like the diet of an athlete that's trying to get a little bit leaner, which is really simple. It's flood the body with protein so that it doesn't break down muscle and you don't lose muscle. It is ingest enough carbohydrates to fuel activity. And it is stay away from non-nutritious fats and hyper-processed foods. And that's it. Because the way you think about it is the protein's got to be there to rebuild the muscle. You need carbohydrates because I'm still going to train and that fuels the workouts. And why make my liver turn fat into carbohydrates if I can just eat carbohydrates instead? Um, and given that I'm carrying plenty of extra fat, like the fat doesn't have that much of a role. So if anything, it's actually a very kind of old school conventional diet. But after spending about a week of research and pulling the whole, you know, I write books, getting to talk to smart nutritionists, um, everyone that works with any kind of athlete says like all that stuff's garbage, fuel the efforts, protein to rebuild, calories in, calories out, do it super gradually. And oh, by the way, tell me how you're eating. Uh, this is probably going to be as easy as cutting out the stones and the peanut butter filled pretzels. 
<laughs> so let, and let the Swedish you, fish. Yeah, people are shocked to hear that 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 I of all people eat Swedish fish. But I blame okay. my my four year old Theo. He fell and also now we're going to get judged as parents. He fell in love with Swedish fish, and after he got his COVID vaccine, which yes he's four and yes he has a COVID vaccine. We won't go into details on that. I promised him he could pick out anything from the drugstore, right? And I called it the toy store, thinking that he'd go into like the toy aisle and pick out like a little stuffy. He went right to the candy and got the, not the family size, the community size bag of Swedish fish that has been sitting in our freezer for months. And we are just chipping away. And because I'm a good parent, he's only allowed to have two after dinner or three, but dad just sneaks them in. So, um, yep, it's going to be small changes. <laughs> you know, you're taking the taking the sacrifice for him. I think there a little bit. Um, I love that. You, you, but that gets to okay. This is a side tangent, but I think it's important here. One is a lot of times when you're either in this space of performance or you're an athlete. Like I've experienced this my entire life. Outside people have assumptions on your diet that like you're often like perfect or like you just eat, you know, the most healthy stuff and you never eat your Swedish fish, et cetera. Like I've experienced that my entire life. Um, my, my wife has as a runner as well. Like you get asked these questions because you're generally again, seen as extremely healthy, (laughs) but like that doesn't mean you don't, occasionally or sometimes again when you're training a ton like frequently like consume these these things that might not be like the healthiest and i think again like keeping that in moderation and then being real with yourself is important so i don't hate your swedish fish i mean i guess they'll go away for a while but i consume them as well so there it is eat your swedish fish if you're if you want to Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and again, this is like more or less about like just telling my brain that, Hey, I mean, yeah, to put it simply, I'm, I'm stumbling upon words. I'm just like projecting out into the future at age 55 or 60 and saying, what would it look like to weigh 205 or more pounds then? And not being comfortable with that idea and knowing what I know about the brain and how my brain works, not wanting my brain to get too used to eating to sustain this weight knowing that if I have some performance loss at the gym, that's fine. And knowing that it's not like I'm like, you know, 10% body fat. There's, there's also plenty of, of pounds to be lost that in theory won't affect performance too much. Um, and, and, and hoping that once my, once my calf is surgically repaired, that I have a good recovery and it allows me to jog and bike and do some of the things that I used to love doing where I'm not going to need to have all this weight for performance goals anyways. So it's a lifestyle choice. I think the important thing for our listeners is it's driven for me. Like I said, everyone looks in the mirror at their body. I'd say in the range of two to 4%, it'll be a nice to have aesthetic, but it's really driven by health, longevity, wanting to be around for a while. And I'm attempting it very, very gradually. I'm not doing some fad and I'll probably fail and come up a little bit short. And maybe I shoot for 195 and it's 198. It doesn't really matter. Um, I'm also looking forward to it just as an experiment to like take on a behavior change that a lot of people find challenging 
that thanks to the privilege of good genetics and having a lifestyle that allows me to be really active, I've never had to try to do. Like I've never quote unquote dieted. I've never done anything like this before. Yeah, but since since football and eating to gain weight, like I haven't had to pay attention. So it'll be a really interesting experiment. Yeah, I I think that's worthwhile because it it um or it'll give you some like it's a, just a little bit of taste and a little bit of empathy and understanding because it, it again it is something that you know similar to you as someone gifted with good genetics and then a lifelong tendency to run a lot. Um, I haven't had to worry about that either. But on the flips, on the flip side, um, for, while we're talking about health, like I've also sat here and thought of, you know, what does it look like when we're I'm 55 or 60 or whatever have you, and spent a lot of time the last I don't know couple months of sitting here being like, okay, what is sustainable running for the long haul? Because like I enjoy this activity. And when I was in my 20s, I would I remember thinking this of like, who cares if I get injured or hurt or can't run when I'm 40? Like, let's just bulldoze through everything so that I can perform well. And now that that attitudes has to change. So like, I've thought more about like, how do I set my body up so that it doesn't have maybe imbalances or has enough strength or like my calf is strong enough and over the long haul to not, you know, keep tearing or whatever have you, or my knee can handle my knee that sometimes hurt when I was, you know, training a lot has the like strength and coordination to handle like jogging slowly. And then what does like the sustainable running look like? both right now and then over the long haul. So maybe not on the diet side, but on the, on the fitness side, I've definitely spent a lot of time thinking of like, Hmm, how do I make this like sustainable so that hopefully in 20 years I'm doing, you know, about the same thing or something that is like approaching it where I can feel good about it and, and get what I need from a health and uh, mental health st- standpoint as well. I want to come back to that and ask where you've ended up because you're kind of leading us into this discussion without answering the question that everyone's going to have, which is, well, what'd you choose to do? Before we get there and fully get off diet, I think it's important about being really explicit on one thing relating to nutrition. And that is that there are clear and objective risks that are extremely measurable of being overweight or obese. They include, but are not limited to, hypertension, diabetes, joint issues, even some types of cancer. Those are real. People that claim that those are not real and that those are demeaning or offensive are doing themselves a disservice. At the same time, judging someone for their weight, moralizing weight, Feeling bad or guilty or shameful about one's weight is also very unhealthy and can lead to psychological distress that can be associated with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, all kinds of bad stuff too. So this topic needs to be approached with nuance, and that's why I'm trying to provide it as explicitly as I can here. And I think that like we talk about with self-discipline and self-compassion, For those that are new, there's the Marine saying, be self-disciplined. There's the 
kumbaya saying, let's all hold hands and love each other. And to do hard things, you actually need both. When it comes to weight and nutrition, I think both things can be true at once. Moralizing health, pursuing objectives based on some social pressure makes no sense. Being mean or stigmatizing against overweight or obese people is a very real thing and it makes no sense. And there are studies that show that overweight and obese people get worse outcomes at healthcare, not only because of the extra weight, but because of the stigma and the bias of their providers. All of that is real. At the same time, there are some new movements to try to make things like overweight and obesity subjective, not objective. And personally, I find those really problematic. Again, because you can tell that to someone at age 40 that's fighting the system, but if that person requires a diabetic amputation at age 65, then that's the cost of that mindset. So I think this is a big example of holding two ideas at once, which is there is a healthy way to think about weight. There is a healthy way to attempt to change your weight. There is a terrible way to treat people and to treat oneself if you are overweight or obese. But to put health aside makes no sense, but to moralize and judge makes no sense. So the way I like to talk about it is you can be both body positive and desire to achieve a healthy body weight because you want to live a long, healthy life. And both of those things can be true at once. So that's how I think about it. That's how I talk about it. Some people are going to hate this for on both sides of the spectrum, but I think it's just another issue where there are a lot of people that feel very strongly and, 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 and miss the boat. And I've read stuff that moralizes weight to the umph degree and makes me vomit. And I've read stuff of people saying that diabetes is an invention of the white patriarchy in America. And that also makes no sense to me. So I just wanted to call that out explicitly before we move on. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm glad you did, because I think the nuance around this topic is incredibly important. I know it's, again, very difficult to thread that needle. So hopefully, hopefully that helps. And, and we did. All right. So, Steve, former, for those that don't know, 401 miler, sixth fastest high schooler in the world, post-collegiate, tried to be pro, never worked out, now pro at many other wonderful things. How are you approaching running, which used to be 100 miles a week, your whole identity, such a big part of your life? I know you too, in addition to having lots of other similarities with our the way our brains work and the way that our family structures are. We also both have jacked up calves and heels. Um, mine's gotten to a point where, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm attempting to get it surgically repaired this summer. I know you've been avoiding that. So why don't you talk to us about how you're thinking about your relationship with running over the long haul? Yeah. So it's it's um, it's an interesting relationship, my relationship with running. But I think I've come to the point where I've recognized what running gives or provides for me at this point. And it's a couple different things. First, it's like my main avenue towards fitness and health because I enjoy doing it. I don't like biking. I don't like other sorts of aerobic activities. I hate being indoors doing those things. So elliptical, all that stuff. I will tolerate those and have tolerated those in the past when I've been training for something. But if I'm just looking at fitness, not going to do it. So being outside and going on runs from a health and fitness standpoint, cardiovascular fitness is extremely important. 
But it also brings more to that is it brings, I think, a little structure to my day. I always try and run in the mornings. It wakes me up, (laughs) provides this like standard thing I do. And then also like gives me space because most of my runs are done by myself, which means I have anywhere, you know, from 30 minutes onwards to be alone in my head with no devices nothing else and just kind of think about things and work through things or daydream or what have you. And I really value that time and space, especially now with the, the, the connected world. And then, so that, that kind of covers, okay, what does running provide for me? And then the other thing that I think is really important that, you know, a year ago I wouldn't have said or two years or something like that is, even if I'm not competing, occasionally doing something hard, meaning not just going for like a five, six mile easy run, but doing a tempo run or some sort of like intervals or just like running hard up a hill, like whatever have have you is is increasingly important because it reminds me of what like discomfort is. And reminds me that I can like navigate and have some sort of control over it. And it makes me feel afterwards like a little bit alive because you just like jacked your heart rate all the way up, felt your legs just like burning and had this like sensation to want to quit. But you figured your way through it for maybe another 15 seconds or 30 seconds afterwards, whatever it is. Isn't that the benefit of like cold water immersion? That's a huge trend now, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, yes. Like, just like that feeling of like, oh, I'm alive and I want to quit, but I'm not going to, and I can deal with discomfort. And then at the end, I feel so good because I did. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I mean, it's, it's like, so there's, I, I have this like pet theory where I think we need to feel some sort of like high heightened, like arousal or stress response, right? Because we're human. Because, you know, millennia ago when we were walking around on the savanna, like we were going to feel it at some point because some animal was going to come up and attack us or some other tribe or person, whatever have you. So exercise is one way how you can get that. You can also get it through jumping in a freezing cold bath, right? Yeah. You know what I did this past weekend? What's that? It's like warm water, cold snow immersion. So... Our friends got a hot tub in their backyard and we had this very um, unusual late in the year snow in Asheville. So we went over to their house and their hot tubs right off their deck and their deck had about an inch of snow on it. And I made snow angels with Theo on the deck in the snow and then jumped in the hot tub. It was outstanding. Um, I don't know like what biohacking program that would fit under, but the best part of it is having my four-year-old be like, daddy, daddy, what? He's like, my skin's prickly because, you know, when you go from cold to warm, um, that was great. And you know what? I did feel great after that. And of course, it's being with friends. It's being with my young son. It's the conversation. But yeah, there is something about just like making snow angels in the cold and then jumping into a hot tub. That's a lot of fun. That's, That's your next book. Sell it. Right now. Oh, I like that. What could we call it? Like warm water, cold snow, feel alive, crush your goals. 
pretty much. But I, I, you know, I, I think there is, there's a lot to that. And I'm reminded actually, I think I've told this story before if, if I have apologized, but you know, when I was in college, I just remember after this really hard workout we did and, you know, we're on the ground, like exhausted on the track. Like I was probably puking. And my college coach like just is standing there observing the craziness and not any other thing. But for us, it was normal. And he just like makes this comment and he's like, you know, like your parents, they probably haven't felt what you're feeling for like 30 years, if if ever. And like for whatever reason, that thought stuck around. And I think in my own head, I'm like, well, you know. I always want to be able, whether it's in running or something else, like be able to feel like, hey, this is pushing my body to the like too near the limit right now. And the time like it's now much slower than it would have been, you know, even five years ago. But like, that's not the point. The point is like the feeling, the sensation, the like, oh, this is a challenge. Let's see what we can do. Yep. Love it. And I think that as you get older, that um, that becomes really important to keep in mind, too, because at some point your body makes it harder to do those things from a purely fitness perspective. So maybe the key for someone in their 50s or 60s or 70s is just to do 30 minute brisk walks every day, but then in some other area of their life to do it. It's almost like the reverse of all the fads, like the the people that the cold water immersion probably is most helpful for isn't like the already healthy 25 to 40 year olds. It's the 70 to 80 year olds that can't get that from, you know, trying to pull 400 pounds off the ground or run a five minute mile or whatever. Exactly. No, I think you're spot on because it provides That's the that. book we should sell. <laughs> it's like be strong and cold in the second half of life. Yep. There it is. Maybe we'll write that one in our 60s. That's so. the ticket, man. Those books do great. The second half of life books do great. David Brooks, The Second Mountain, Arthur Brooks, From Strength to Strength. There's a market for that 55 to 60-year-old, what do we do now? And I think that the missing piece of the puzzle that some of these great thinkers have left out is the the cold water. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's just like, again, it's something difficult. that Do hard things. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but the counter to that is like the more Buddhist view, which is why like life is hard enough. You know what hard things going to happen when you're 60? Like you're going to lose a partner or a brother or a sister. You're going to get a cancer diagnosis. So here's my answer to that. We have a sense of control over running up a hill or jumping in a ice bath that I think makes it like enjoyable to a degree and feel like we did something or accomplished something or navigated something. The hard things that generally occur in life, like they're forced upon us. So we're just like, we're surviving, then integrating, then hopefully maybe like growing from it. Maybe Got it. Whereas this, because there's the control, you're, you're, it's just happening. Like, like the positive is going to happen. You're surviving in, and feeling positive. Whereas the other stuff, the positive benefit, if it ever comes is way down the road. Exactly. That's brilliant, Steve. That's a really good insight. Every once in a while, I, I come up with them. So, Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. 
Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.